over this morning. Uh, I know most of you, but if I haven't met you, my name is John Huff. I'm one of the lay elders here, which is just a way of saying a non-staff pastor. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, I would love to do so after the service. Uh, I want to thank all of those who have prayed, and specifically those who have uh, communicated that to me that they have prayed. Um, preparing for a sermon, Paul would say uh, to Timothy about the elders who labor in preaching and teaching. And it is labor. It is hard work. And uh, I, I hear a ring. Anybody else hear that? Yeah. Okay. Should I do anything? No? You don't know? Okay. One more time? This uh, labor, this preaching and teaching that is hard work is so for a number of reasons. It obviously takes a lot of time, but that's not the reason why primarily. Um, it does take a lot of study and writing, but that's not the reason primarily that it is labor or hard work. Uh, I would say that it is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare in the preparation and in the delivery. And so I do covet the prayers of uh, all of our people and I would encourage you to be in a habit of regularly praying for whoever is preaching next. So over the next two weeks, it will be Bob, Bob preaching. And, uh, and then just considering the work that uh, our pastors do in regularly preparing and preaching the word. As we look at the Passover passage in scripture this morning, I want you to think more than just about Hebrew slaves and cruel Egyptians and little lambs and unleavened bread. I want you to think about what is behind all of those details. When God was instituting this ceremony that we call the Passover, I want you to think about worship. And too often we can think of worship in a limited sense, and we're very intentional. You'll even notice in the bulletin how we talk about worship through singing and worship through praying and worship through giving. And Charlie just mentioned how the six-year-olds are encouraged to stay with us for the worship as uh, we sit under the word. John Piper would call preaching expository exaltation, right? Expounding scripture in a spirit of worship. So that's what the person preaching is doing. But what are the people who are listening doing? Well, if the shepherd is to feed the sheep and they do so through preaching, then what should the sheep do? You should eat. And this eating is not a passive uh, experience. This is being actively involved in the sermon. Now, actively involved in the sermon doesn't mean that I'm going to call you out of your seat to be a part of the sermon. I would never do that again. <laughs> but let me encourage you to think as you sit there, and young people, I would encourage you right now, if you will, to get a pen and paper and to write down four words. Four words. God, man, Christ's response. These aren't the four points of the sermon. This is a, a framework, if you will, to help as you actively are involved in the listening to any sermon uh, to think through what is this passage, what is the sermon teaching us about who God is, about who we are, man, about how it points to Christ, and then about how we should respond. So I pray that it's helpful for you. It has been helpful for me, even as I think about how I can ask my kids questions over lunch on Sunday. What did they learn about God? What did they learn about man? How did this passage show them Christ? And how do we respond to it? And because we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to accomplish all of this, it is fitting and right for us to go to him in prayer as we begin. Let's pray. 
Father, we recognize uh, there is a spiritual warfare that is going on, even for the attention and the hearts and the minds right now of all who are here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to set aside distractions, to not focus on anything else, however pressing it may seem, and to focus on you and what you have revealed in your word, that we might be stirred to worship. God, I pray that you would give to all here ears to hear. I pray for the young. I pray for those that know gospel facts, but their heart has not yet been changed by the Holy Spirit to become worshipers of Christ. I pray that that would change even today. I pray for those who would admit they're not yet believers, they're interested, they're coming, we're thankful for that. God, I pray that you would bring about the work of repentance and give the gift of faith to them. Lord, help us to see Christ clearly as he is beautifully portrayed in this passage. And may our rightful response be to fall down and worship before him. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. The sermon this morning only has two points. And uh, those in CLK this morning are going to thank me because I'm not a long-winded preacher. I've got two points for you. Here's the first one. God alone is worthy of all our worship. God alone is worthy of all our worship. Candace read uh, the first 13 pass or verses of our passage. Let's read 13 more. Let's read from verses 14 to 27. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel." whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And here's the title of the sermon. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses 
And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. One commentator said that the drama of the plagues that we have been looking at uh, on Egypt now seems to hit what is a, a liturgical interlude, which is a fancy way of saying a break in the action to talk about worship. I mean, we went from the Nile being turned to blood, to the invasion of frogs and gnats and flies, to livestock dying, people breaking out with boils, to giant hail raining down devastation, and then locusts devouring what remained. And then the ninth plague, the darkness that fell on the land for three days, so pitch black you could feel it. We mentioned in chapter 11 last week the announcement of this final plague, which was the death of the firstborn. If this was a movie, and I realize some would say there was a movie, but I'm talking about a real movie, it would be rated R for this intense thematic elements. And we go from all of that action to chapter 12, which seems to be a break in that action, where God gives us instructions, I say gives us, gives the children of Israel rather, instructions for a day called Passover, and then for a week-long feast to follow called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's God has given his people here a, a new start, a new beginning. He says in verse 2, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, if you think about what holiday do almost all people celebrate? Unfortunately, it's not Christmas. It's generally our favorite holiday, if you ask most people. But some would celebrate Christmas. Others would not. They'd celebrate holidays for the end of Ramadan that I can't even pronounce. There's one holiday that almost everybody celebrates. New Year's. And God has given his people here a new start. And think about the life of a slave, how all their days must have just run together. They didn't have a Monday through Friday work week, and then on the weekend take the pontoon boat out on the Nile, right? It was always the same. What are we going to do today? Same thing we do every day. The Egyptians had been, rather the Israelites had been in Egypt longer than Americans have been in America. So this is all they knew. And now God has given them a calendar to celebrate their first holy day, this holiday to start off their month of Aviv. So Passover is part New Year's Day, but it's more so Memorial Day. As God was instituting Israel's first holy day as a day to always look back on and remember what he had done for his people, a day to mark for all generations, for the children to ask in the future, why are you doing this? Well, let's talk about it. This is when God delivered us Get this, not only from slavery in Egypt, but also from the false gods of Egypt. And the Passover instructions, God's calling his people to worship him. They're given instructions about choosing a lamb. It was to be without blemish, a year old. They were to offer it as a sacrifice. They were to put its blood on the lintel and on the doorpost. So lintel is not a word we use often. I don't use it often. If you're wondering what that is, just picture a doorpost for a doorframe. The blood was to go there, and then it was to go over the top, the lintel. They were to roast the lamb, and then to eat it with two things, unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The unleavened bread was because they were to eat it in haste. They were to follow Genesis and get ready for their exodus. They were to gird up their loins. 
They, the idea here of being uh, sandals on their feet, staff in a hand, and a belt on. Why would they have a belt on? Well, it wasn't as the reasons we normally wear a belt for our decoration of sorts, but for them, this is the way for them to tuck in their long robes so that way they could move quickly. And the, the bitter herbs, that was to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. Because surprisingly, they would look back in the future at times with fondness of Egypt. When they were suffering in the wilderness due to their own sin, and they were complaining and they said, remember those good old days back in Egypt and all that food that we had? So no, it wasn't good. And the bitter herbs were to remind them of that bitterness in Egypt. In the Passover memorial, God is telling his people how they are to worship him. But there may be another question we need to answer first, and that is, why worship him? Are you convinced that it is good for God to command his people to worship him? Does Justin, what he said last week, strike you as off-putting? That God is zealous and jealous to be worshiped. This Thursday is uh, our wedding anniversary. May 11, 22 years. I have not yet figured out what I am getting, Heidi, for our anniversary. I have figured out there's something I should not get her. So picture we're at a nice restaurant. I slide a card across the table. She's excited. She opens it up. She says, what's this? And I tell her, this is a song that I've written for you to sing about me. I'll help you with the jingle. It is, great and mighty is my husband, John. Great and mighty is he. Now you sing, great, not you. <laughs> that would not go over well. Do you realize that God gave us 150 of those? We're not worthy of worship. So obviously we recognize that would be incredibly wrong to do, but God is. And it is loving of him to call us to worship him. When we do so, we fulfill our raison d'etre, our reason to be, the reason we were created. Jonathan Edwards said this, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. God cares a lot about his people worshiping him, and it is good for us to do so. It is loving for him to call us to worship him. Exodus 9:13, the reason for the Exodus, then the Lord said to Moses, "Get up early in the morning." Confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrew says, let my people go that they may, and your version may say, serve me. Other versions will say, worship me. Because the idea behind service here isn't that they're going to go out and, and do some work for the Lord, but rather they're going to go out and worship him. When Moses is on Sinai and God gives him 10 commandments, right? Like here are the top 10 rules. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. God's saying, worship me and worship me alone. We'll see later on in Exodus how serious he is about his worship. 
when there are 13 chapters that are dedicated to worship in the tabernacle. We're not getting into Leviticus, but if we did, we'd find 18 more chapters there about worship in the tabernacle. Compare that to how many chapters God gave us to explain the galaxies that he created. Do you know how many chapters he gave us? None. It got a reference in one verse. Genesis 1.16 says, and he made the stars also. So the immensity, the vastness of the galaxy, which I'm sure he could have talked about for many books of the Bible, got a reference of a verse that small. But yet all of this focus on his worship because that is what is most important. And don't miss the fact in all these plagues, God is showing his power over the false gods of the Egyptians. He says in verse 12, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And this 10th plague is a knockout blow to the Egyptian pantheon of false gods. I mean, you've got the plague of blood that defeated the river gods of the Nile. You've got the locusts that were defeated by the field gods. Or I'm sorry, the locusts defeated the field gods of the harvest. And then their greatest god, Ra. You might remember that guy, Ra, the, the god of the sun. Well, how about three days of pitch black darkness to show who's God? So these Egyptian gods were paper tigers. They, they sound impressive, but they only exist on paper and in the minds of those that are deceived. And God is greater than them. But he's greater than them in a way that we may not initially think. It's not that they are strong and he's just stronger. So my son Eli has got into basketball. We've had a hoop up for the last four years. It hasn't got a lot of use, but the last year it has. He's out there practicing all the time. He wants to play me. And so we'll play a game. And I made a mistake. I let him win. He goes into the house. He's telling everybody, I beat dad. I beat dad. I said, all right, let's play one more game. In the next game, I was stealing the ball. I was blocking his shots. I was telling him, like, I, I, right now I'm greater. That may change in time, but right now I'm greater. But that's not how God is greater than the gods of Egypt. Let's use something more powerful. For July 4th, if you purchase fireworks, you might get some sparklers. You might get poppets. Anybody remember poppets? Little paper wrapped, feels like gravel inside of them. You can throw them down on the ground and they pop. Not going to hurt anybody, right? Not going to send anybody to the hospital. It's just a poppet. That is the power, if you will, of the demonic power behind the Egyptian false gods. So then I was thinking, What's the most powerful bomb? Immediately, my mind went to like Hiroshima. Little did I know, that's not even anywhere near it. The Russians have this bomb that they dropped in 1961 called the Tsar Bomba, which means Emperor of Bombs. The blast wave from this bomb circled the globe three times. Like the power is just mind boggling. And that is how much greater our God is than any other God. So he exposes these false gods for what they are. That is completely unable to stop his omnipotent strength. The polytheistic Egyptians should have come to terms with the fact that their gods couldn't protect them. It was only the God of Moses and Aaron who was worthy of worship. But we don't have any record that they ever did that. But it wasn't just the Egyptians who were worshiping false gods. 
the people of Israel were drawn to these false gods too. I'm going to read to you from Joshua 24. You don't see it immediately in the text in Exodus 12, but you do see Joshua in, verse, in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 say, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve, a.k.a. worship the Lord. So the Israelites did have this temptation, this struggle. As you can imagine, 400 years of being in Egypt, some of that was wearing off on them. And God was not just delivering them from slavery. He was delivering them from these false gods that they might worship him alone. So if you think about the application for us, prior to this sermon series, you may not have even known there was a God named Ra. I think back to our time in Togo when we would have baptisms, we would call the people who were animistic and who literally had idols in their home. We would say, if there is anything that remains, any idols of any sort, bring them with you on the Sunday for the baptism and publicly displaying to all their allegiance to Christ alone, they would destroy those idols and burn those idols before they were getting baptized. Our idols are a little bit harder to see, but they're there nonetheless. Tim Keller in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, says, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place of business and gain more wealth and prestige. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 3, 6, that greed is not just wrong, it's idolatrous. It's worshiping an idol. Tim Keller breaks down a definition of an idol he says, it is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness or your identity or your meaning in life. Anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, your identity, or your meaning in life. Do you recognize the idols in your own heart? Well, let's not be so naive as to say that we don't have any idols. John Calvin would say that our hearts are idle factories, right? They're just, production doesn't stop. So God's purpose in bringing Israel out of Egypt was to save a people for his glory, to save a people who would worship him and worship him alone. And then I want you to see, secondly, that God is full of mercy to those who trust in him. Praise God for this. He is full of mercy for those who trust in him. Let's get back to Exodus 12. We'll read 12 and 13, and then 29 through 32. 12 through 13, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So there we see the 
prophecy of this judgment to come. And then in 29 through 32, we see its fulfillment. At midnight, verse 29, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. When we read what happened to the Egyptians, we may think it's appropriate, but we may be surprised to see what happened with the Israelites and that they were threatened with this judgment. The same night that God brought death to every Egyptian house, he also visited every Israelite home. But like the Egyptians, the Israelites themselves were under a sentence of death. But in his mercy, God provided his people a way to escape his wrath. For all the other plagues that we talked about, Israel was spared. So they're over in Goshen. They're watching from a distance this horror movie unfold. And I imagine at some level they're thinking they're getting what is due. They're, whatever the expression may have, been, may have been equivalent in that day of how do you like them apples, right? You've been mistreating us as slaves for 400 years. Now you're getting your comeuppance. They may have been tempted to believe that God's wrath would never be on them. After all, compared to their taskmasters, they were pretty good. I mean, they weren't enslaving people, but that's not how the scales of God's justice work. When God laid out the ground rules to Adam in Genesis 2, he said in verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? die. God says, you disobey, you sin, you die. That is what happened with Adam. And we know full well what happens with all of us. Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world and death through sin, and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death. This death it's physical, it's spiritual, it's eternal. We think the plagues are bad, but the eternal suffering that awaits those who aren't trusting in the sacrifice of Christ, the mercy that God has offered, those plagues are nothing compared. Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else, and the images that he used are terrifying. When you think of Matthew 13, 40 through 43. Jesus said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The difference between the judgment that God brought on the Egyptians and threatened Israel with and the judgment to come is they knew when he was coming. We don't. Scripture says that he is coming like a thief in the night. 
the Egyptians were sinners and they got justice. But the Israelites were sinners too. And they got mercy. So is that fair? R.C. Sproul, who is always helpful in such a concise way, said the Egyptians got justice, the Israelites got non-justice, nobody got injustice. Right? The Egyptians got justice, the Israelites got non-justice, a.k.a. mercy, but no one got injustice. God will have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. His word is clear, and it's unashamed of this fact. And the question shouldn't be, why doesn't everyone get mercy? The question ought to be, why does anyone get mercy? And in this final plague, we see the mercy of God on full display to those who are trusting in the spotless, sacrificial, substitutionary lamb. I want you to think about those three things. Spotless, sacrificial, substitutionary lamb. So each household was to choose its own lamb, and it had to be perfect. So the lamb was destined to serve as a sacrifice for sin, and the only acceptable sacrifice to God is a perfect sacrifice. So it had to be pure and spotless. This is very clearly pointing to the only one who ever walked this earth with a spotless record. You think about when a politician is going to run for office, and they have to know that there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. There's going to be a lot of uh, digging for dirt on them, right? They're going to try and find any skeletons in the closet they can to, to smear them. And Jesus, when he was in confrontation with the Pharisees, asked them just this question. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Right? Look at my life and tell me one sinful thing that I've done. That's what Jesus could say. We can't say that. James 3, 2 says, but we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. We stumble in many ways. Christ, Peter would say, 1 Peter 2, 22, committed no sin. Spotless lamb. And then we see he, of the sacrifice here of the lamb. Verse 13 of Exodus 12 says, the blood shall be a sign for you. The blood shall be a sign for you. Philip Ryken uh, called it a visceral reminder. I had to look up the word visceral. Uh, and he's saying that it's not just intellectual facts about the sacrifice, but it's something that you would feel in your gut and, and watching this happen. Just think about the little lamb that the children, no doubt over the previous year, had grown fond of, probably named it, played with it. And now for the Passover, that little lamb with its neck being stretched back, and his throat being cut, and that white wool turning red with blood. And there are two important things that we see in this atoning sacrifice. One is called expiation, and the other one is propitiation. Expiation and propitiation. So the blood was there to testify that their guilt would be taken away. That's the expiation, taken away. The fact that these offerings had to continually be made, though, would show that it was never sufficient to take away their sins. It was just a shadow of what was to come. The King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 35, uh, when celebrating the Passover, slaughtered more than 37,000 sheep. 37,000. And when you think about all the Passovers from the time that it was instituted here in Exodus 12 up until the time that Jesus was celebrating Passovers, the millions of sheep, the millions of lambs that would have been 
slaughtered, whose blood would have been spilled. But we are reminded in Hebrews 10:4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So this expiation, this taking away of our sin and our guilt was pictured in the sacrifice, but it wasn't sufficient. And then also this sacrifice shows how God's wrath was turned away, what we call propitiation. So the blood atonement of the sacrifice pictures that by faith, our sins would be taken away, expiation, and God's wrath would be turned away, propitiation. This is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This first Passover lamb was just a picture of the many more to come leading up to the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus, when he's celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, gathers them together on Passover. And he's explaining to them how, how this is changing from what you see in Exodus 12 to what you see in the Gospels. And no longer is he standing before them as a father would before his family, explaining to them the deliverance from Egypt, but now he is pointing to himself and saying, I'm the sacrificial lamb. This is my body. This is my blood. And literally, as the lambs were being sacrificed in Jerusalem for that Passover, Jesus at that same time is hanging on the cross with his sacrificial blood flowing from his hands and his side. He was a sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. That's what makes his sacrifice different. And God proves this when he raises Christ from the dead. This annual sacrifice of the Passover lamb is a constant reminder of the high cost of their redemption. Their life came from someone else's death. They needed a substitute. It's what we call penal substitutionary atonement. This is what the heart of the gospel is. Penal substitutionary atonement. The innocent dying for the guilty. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ sin, who was the spotless lamb, who knew no sin, in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when the Israelites put the blood on their door, it was a sign for them of the substitute that had to die in their place. Jesus shed his own blood for our sins. And the New Testament is very specific about this in a number of places. And when it talks about blood, it's just really shorthand for substitutionary atonement. In Romans 5, 9, it says, we have now been justified by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 1.18, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The Egyptians, the Israelites knew when judgment was coming. We don't. If you are not trusting in Christ today, what are you waiting for? You do not know that tomorrow will come. Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the deceitfulness of his own sin, and there was no repentance. You can't put repentance on a calendar and say, I'm going to do this tomorrow. 
There is mercy to be found for those that will trust in the spotless, sacrificial, substitutionary lamb that God provided, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I pray that all here would trust in that sacrifice. And that brings us back to where we started with worship. So for Christians, I want you to turn to Revelation 5.16. I'm sorry, 5.6. And get a preview of the worship that is to come. Revelation 5.6-14. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let us pray. As you take this moment in silent reflection on the lamb who was slain, I pray that your response would be the same as we've seen in Revelation of worship.